Okay, if you're, if you're hearing this, it means that you have delved back into the early episodes of the show. And whilst we really appreciate that, we just want to give a, I guess, a little disclaimer, Mateus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the early episodes, I was editing this whole thing on a very amateur platform, and we basically just recorded a Zoom call. So um, that's why the quality isn't, you know, awesome. Yeah, we, we didn't have proper microphones. We didn't have proper headphones. But thankfully, it's grown grown into something that's, that's fairly successful now. We were able to have proper equipment and hire people to take care of all that pesky um, audio side of things. But we just wanted to put this out there and let people know that if if you do check out the early episodes and the sound quality isn't perfect, which we know it isn't, please just jump ahead and listen to some of those layer episodes. I don't know if you've got a couple that you particularly like that people can start on, Matthias. Oh, I mean, some of my favorites are, of course, uh, the Howl episodes we did with the Ed Gamester or um, uh, the talks that we had with uh, Shane as well. They were hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, we've got fan favorites like Ina Selvik and all of Highland who joined us for an episode. Um, and Lisa Gedalia was one of my personal favorites. Yes, and Terry Gunnell as well has some very interesting talks with some really high-profile professors. So go check him out. And now we're just dropping names. Now we're just dropping names. <laughs> <laughs> no, we thank you for, for starting out of the early episodes. And please do listen to them. We, you know, we put, still put a lot of love and effort into them. But you do have to bear with us on the on the audio side of things. It does get better as you go through the episodes. And, and I guess it's quite a... Some people enjoy seeing us go through that motion and go from amateur to a little less amateur, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's jump into the show. Welcome to the second episode of the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand and I'm joined by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at who the Vikings are and where they came from. So let's start off with the first question of who were the Vikings? <laughs> well, that's a great <laughs> question, Daniel. Um, yeah, so, uh, well, uh, we should probably ask more like what were the Vikings, right? Um, because, I mean, we know the, the, the word um, has a, 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 the meaning of like pirates or a, a raiders or, or something like that. At least that seems like that's the way that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle um, is using it um, mm-hmm. when they talk about leaking us. Um, uh, now, of course... Then the, the word Viking uh, also crops up, starts cropping up in, uh, in, uh, during the Viking Age in Scandinavia on runestones where we see uh, Scandinavians talking about uh, people they have lost. Um, this man um, died somewhere in the East. He went a Viking or this and that person was a Viking and so on, right? So that's, that's self, kind of like them call themselves Viking, not... Yeah, I always assumed it was just an out, you know, like a third party name for 
no, no, for them that they no, was kind of, you know. It's something they're using in the Viking Age about themselves, which also okay. means then that that these peoples uh, in Scandinavia who are who are writing this on runestones must have uh, uh, considered this a legitimate profession of some sort. <laughs> and that's what I'm getting at too, right? It, it's a profession. These mm-hmm. Vikings were people in that period we call the Viking Age who did yeah. certain things, right? And just, just to be clear on, on what is the Viking Age anyway, um, you know, the Anglo-Scandinavian definition of the Viking Age is 793 to 1066, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's, you know, the beginning is Lindisfarne, and the ending is uh, uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, where Harold, Hall, Harold Hardruller uh, uh, dies, right, in his attempt to claim the throne of England. Uh, of course, the Viking Age is a lot more than that. Uh, it's not just defined by activities happening in, in, in the British Isles. Um, we should go back, first of all, uh, in time to, 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 to try to identify the beginning of the Viking Age. Um, and of course, we should also consider that, there's, that there are events later on um, after 1066 that are definitely also Viking-related, such as uh, we have, uh, I think it's both Svein uh, Austridason and Harda Knut, um, Danish kings who attempt uh, invasions of England uh, in the 70s, 1070s too. And then we have, of course, uh, uh, Norwegians harrowing Scotland all in, uh, way into the 1100s. And that's an interesting other little fact because uh, what happens next is, of course, that when you know, the, the Scandinavian countries become Christian and perhaps a little more settled and, and, and defined throughout the Viking Age, right? Um, and by the end of the Viking Age, in the 11 and 1200s, they're talking about Vikings from, uh, you know, the eastern Baltic coast, like Estonians and, and Latvians who are all of a sudden Vikings uh, harrowing their coasts, right? <laughs> so is that basically because they're... They're taking that profession of, of you know, of, of being a pirate, effectively. Of, of yeah, I think. I mean, it, we, should, we should consider the word Viking to be more than just pirate. Uh, it's is a little more diverse and complex the way that the, the Viking was probably used back then, right? But it's definitely somebody on a military expedition. That's what a Viking is, and this person on a military expedition is probably led by a chieftain or a king. Uh, primarily from Scandinavia, but could also be from elsewhere, right? Um, the, 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 point, the point of this is, of course, that Viking seems to simply be a profession that people can have in the Viking Age. And this is, of course, something that has to do with the social structures, too. Uh, it, it, this is a, a sort of like an early form of conscription, it kind of looks like. Um, the Scandinavians have the term leidanger, which is sort of a later medieval term for conscription. But it looks like it has its origins in the Viking Age. So what seems to happen is that we have these uh, magnates, these chieftains and kings in the Scandinavian area who start amassing wealth and resources, probably because uh, of um, intensified trade from the 500s and onwards in Western Europe, going through the northern European region, through the Baltic Sea. Um, presumably because we're seeing a breakdown of trade routes in the Mediterranean. You have that whole Frankish empire right there on the, the western coast of, of, of Europe who are looking for uh, silk and spices and all of these things from the east. So they, they might start going north. Who knows? 
but the interesting thing is then that what we see is that the Scandinavians become richer and also seem to uh, uh, increase in numbers uh, in the 700s. And that's when the Scandinavians then uh, have enough resources to you know, put a bunch of people on boats with a bunch of weapons <laughs> and then go out there, right? So, so yeah. Just, just going back, am I right in thinking that Denmark was the, the wealthiest of the, the Scandinavian countries because of its position with trade links? Um, with Denmark definitely, yeah, um, I think you're right. Denmark definitely has some, some, some better opportunities because uh, of the archipelago that leads into uh, the Baltic Sea. You can control the trade there. Yeah, I assume that most things going into Norway and Sweden, kind of from the you know from from Rome or from from Europe, are coming through. Everything seems to almost have to go through Denmark to get there, unless you're going. I mean, I think, around. I think you can you know you can bypass Denmark if you're going to Norway. I mean, the Western Norway also seems to be become very rich uh, in this period. Uh, we have like these little areas, clusters, basically. We have. The Danish archipelago and and also the peninsula of Jutland that seems to be uh, uh, fairly well off, uh, and then you have uh, the Western Norwegian area, Hordaland and and Sognefjordene um, around the Bergen area, and also a little farther north in the in the Trondheim Møre uh, region, and of course not to forget uh, Bork in Lofoten in, in the far north. That was a very rich place too. And then in Sweden, what we have is, is of course, Svealand, or the Uppland area around modern-day Stockholm and Uppsala. That area also is, is a power base and, and affluent. Um, so, uh, so, so, so what we have is, of course, this development of trade and, and the amassing of resources that then gives local kings the, in the possibility to start warfare with, uh, with others and... One thing that scholars have found when they have been looking at, um, at Viking activities and trade and all that stuff is that as, as soon as the trade networks break down for different reasons, um, that could, for instance, be um, um, a, a, a band of, of pirates showing up in, 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 in some region that's on the route for, the, for a, trade, a trade network or something else. Then we have a, an uptick in war in, in the Viking Age. And that's, that's actually how it ebbs and flows back and forth between prosperous trade and then a breakdown of trade and, and, and a lot of war, and then back again. And so what it kind of looks like is that these Vikings, uh, these chieftains, they're trying to secure trade and trying to, um, because they know that trading is actually the, the most profitable way of, of, of becoming rich. So, um, so they're trying to secure the routes and they're trying to secure the trade ports, right? Uh, Birka, Köpang, uh, Hedebu, um, and so on, right? So, so what it kind of looks like is that uh, uh, when we talk about Vikings and we ask who, who were they or what were they, uh, the Viking is somebody who uh, in, the, uh, in the Viking age, in this, uh, this um, period from, let's uh, go all the way back to the beginning of the 700 and then it's stop around 1100, right? In that period, a Viking is somebody who is on military expeditions and trade expeditions. And they are not just Scandinavians. It very much looks like, as I just mentioned, we, we can see the Scandinavians talk about Estonians as Vikings. Um, Finns are Vikings too. 
and yeah. and also that- Scottish, you know, and Irish Vikings. Yeah, I think the the general consensus to anyone who has a limited knowledge on on this kind of thing would be that anybody who is Scandinavian is is a Viking. Yeah, or well, or was a Viking in you know during the Viking Age, which, as you say, obviously isn't isn't the case. It was those who who obviously decided to go and look for for trade or war. Yeah, and 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 that's another thing. Um, Estimates um, made by various scholars suggested about you know ten percent of the population in Scandinavia did the Viking thing in the Viking Age. The rest were farmers, right, or, or other you know kind of like professions that were more uh, localized and sedentary. So, uh, who 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 would have gone Viking? With is there? I assume the obviously you would have your your landholders and. Would it be a case of that it works similar to how how it was working kind of in Anglo-Saxon, where the eldest son would have stayed with the with the father, and then the, you know the the sons beneath that almost would have had no role to fill, so they would have gone looking for adventure and and their own kind of way to to you know, to get a name for themselves. So that's that's a good question. Um, I think this would be very different depending on where we are in Scandinavia. Um, if we look at the saga literature, it doesn't doesn't look like this is something that is confined to just a, uh, a, a, one of the younger sons or something like that, right? What we see is is that the, the older son or the patriarch of a family also is a Viking. Um, so so maybe in Iceland. There was a more of a tendency to be a Viking, um, at least later on, and definitely more of a tendency to be be a, a skald, a, a court poet, uh, in the courts of the Norwegians and Danish and Swedish kings, even even the English and Scottish kings. Um, so so that's that's one thing to consider. Then we have Nor- Norway and the the whole Norwegian uh, uh, region. That where where it's probably a mix, you know. It's probably it, well the, the, for these people up there. I think the the primary thing is that you have to have access to a boat. You have to have access to 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 all the things, the trappings that you need as a Viking, and that can mm-hmm. be hard to come by, right? If you if you don't own land, or if you if you don't have um, um, the luck, so to speak, to get that, right? If we go to Denmark, I think it looks a little different there. Maybe in the beginning it was a similar uh, uh, situation. We do see that on Moonstones, where it's mentioned that uh, these two guys had a boat together and they they were going Viking and such things. But Denmark does look like it's more a, a hierarchy where you have what seems to be sort of an aristocratic control over at least the Jutland area. Um, which means then that maybe maybe this was not so much of a uh, oh you can choose or not choose to do that uh, maybe maybe we're we're dealing with chieftains who are like, uh, conscripting um, uh, people. You also have to consider the 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 level in society that the person is on. Um, Vikings Viking warriors are definitely an elite in in Scandinavian society in this period of time. Um, now, who then enters this elite? 
uh, it looks like the freeholding peasants are, are, are very much part of the Viking elite. But you could probably also find tenant peasants, um, people without uh, their own land, uh, who who also uh, have, uh, you know, have the Viking pursuit as their opportunity. So, so, but 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 there's definitely there's going to be hierarchies, right? And they the the tenant peasants might probably be the ones <laughs> who you, you put in the front line. <laughs> they're, they're the cannon fodder, right? <laughs> so, so would there be? Could anybody decide to to go Viking? Or because I mean, obviously, you have like you say, you have to have a ship, which I can't a seafaring ship can't be easy to get hold of, and you have to effectively have others that want to go with you. Um, but is there like a, a a social status that would say that you just you couldn't go, or like you know you, you're saying about the different the different structures, could you break that boundary and, and, and make that leap? Or is it a case of you've got to stick to your kind of area and, and if that's just not something you can pursue, then tough? Uh, so I think, again, it, it, that this depends on region. Um, it's probably, as I said, more rigid in, in the Danish area. Uh, the Danes seem to pick up uh, aspects of uh, Frankish aristocratic lifestyle uh, very quickly, uh, already in the, the six, seven hundreds. Um, uh, so, so, so it might be a little more difficult if you're a, a person of lower status in society to become a Viking, unless, of course, you're in, uh, conscripted as a cannon fodder. This is a uh, we don't really know, right? Okay. <laughs> I, mean, the, I think the main thing is. You have to be a free person, and mm-hmm. there are of course slaves in that society, and and they would not be able to at least choose for themselves if they wanted to do that, and and that's that's the second problem here. You know, what is the boundary between a slave and a tenant peasant? That's really not easy to discern, because you can, for instance, in the Viking Age, if you had debt, you can sell yourself to slavery in order to free yourself of the debt. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of d- different uh, sort of structures uh, of, of, of being in sort of like a patron-client relationship, which Viking also is, right? So, so that's, that's one thing to consider. I think, I think we would generally see Vikings being sort of like the broad middle-class people of Scandinavia, if we can talk about that who are aspiring to ascend to something greater. Adding to this, you also have to consider that, you know, if, if I'm some Viking guy, uh, I have a ship, um, I'm not a king or anything like that, not a chieftain, but I've managed to amass enough wealth to build my own ship. And, and um, so what kind of people am I looking for to join me on, on a journey, right? Um, uh, depending on what kind of ideas I have of like what makes a person honorable and noble, uh, I will make my choices, right? What, where does a good warrior come from? And it seems like they, they, they had the implicit assumption that people of higher rank in society were better warriors than, uh, than, than people of lower rank. That doesn't mean that people of lower rank couldn't, you know, become uh, good warriors, but just think about that situation if you're like standing there at, at a port in, in uh, you know, central Norway somewhere 
and and some guy comes up to you and says, "Hi, can I become a Viking?" And then you're like, "Well, what's your family?" And well, I come from this uh, this unknown family that lives in a hovel over here in the, in the fjord, right? Then you might not be that impressed as uh, if somebody's like, "Well, I descend from hero this and that," you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're if you're going to descend on this adventure to an unknown land and be stuck there with a group of people and effectively go to war and try and take things from somebody else. You want the best people available. You want people you can trust, people, certainly people you know can fight and look after themselves. Exactly. So you're not going to want to take any, you know, any old schmuck. You want. <laughs> you, you, you. Also, another thing, like as as this type of Viking, if you aspire to become a Viking, one of the things that you can do in the Viking age is that you can start off with like trade. Uh, you go on trade routes and you prove yourself to be a reliable person uh, with uh, with whomever is leading the trade. Um, you can, for instance. Uh, um, Managed to 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 go with some uh, Swedish trader who trades with uh, uh, the Caliphate or or the, uh, the Byzantines, and then once you get down there into the Black Sea, then you can uh, uh, then you can uh, uh, thank the guy very much for um, having him uh, having you on board his ship, and then you can go and enlist as a Beringian warrior uh, with uh, the Byzantines, right? So, so that's also a thing, right? Uh, you can uh, 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 then, then if you manage to stay alive uh, as part of the Varangian Guard, and and then manage to come back to Scandinavia. Now, there, there you have uh, a lot of um, status, right? Because then you've been, you know, a professional uh, warrior in 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 what the Scandinavians would call Greece at the time. So, so that's also part of it. But yeah, so uh, aside from aside from that, so we have we have social status as one thing um, when it comes to this becoming Viking. The second thing is, of course, it, it, as we also touched upon a little before, like, well, who were like what, what kind of like ethnicities are we dealing with? It's really interesting to see that say in Scandinavia you find runestones that mention uh, Saxons who are Vikings. Um, there's a Danish runestone where this guy Asar, uh, the Saxon, um, is uh, is praised as a good Viking, and you know the reason that the runestone exists is because he died. So, but but he had uh, four friends who, whom he went um, a Viking with. So would that be would that be somebody who came willingly from from what we now know as England, or is that somebody who was Taken as maybe a slave, and then has proved their their worth as a as a warrior, and kind of like earned the trust, earned the lifestyle, and then progressed from there into being accepted and being a Viking. Or could you just freely go from an ex, you know from an external country other than Scandinavia and go and join? So it very much looks like this uh, for this particular runestone that I'm uh, referring to here. Uh, uh, which is actually from from the area of my hometown, Aarhus. Um, this guy seems to have been a free man who enlisted as a Viking. 
Um, he might have come from the English area, but he could also, and I think that's probably more likely to come from the northern German area. Um, okay. Because uh, that's what that's probably what they would have called a Saxon at the time. Yeah. Um, but it, but he could also have been uh, sort of like a, a Saxon from uh, from from the English area. Um, so when we when we start digging into the archaeology, right, and we start looking at uh, uh, genetics and DNA and all that stuff, what we can see in the grave sites in various places in Scandinavia is that it's a there's a mix of a lot of different people. Um, in the in in, in that you know, uh, inland sea area from, from stretching from the southern Norwegian coast uh, down along the, the, the western Swedish coast and then including the Danish archipelago and all of that stuff. What we see there um, is always a, a, a minor percentage of people who come from the Polish area or, or other, other places that we, we identify as Slavic communities. Um, Kirkpan, this, the, that trade port in southern Norway, had a had a Slavic community. Um, the southern Danish isles, Lolland and Felster, um, just south of the island of Zealand, they have old Slavic place names too. So, so, so it's not it's not sort of like clear cut that there's like oh, did, here begin uh, Danivirke in southern Denmark, and that's Viking and Scandinavian from there. No. There's, there's, there are other peoples living in Scandinavia. I, I imagine it becomes very attractive to, to outsiders once, once you start seeing successful raids and people coming back with untold wealth that you're not going to make farming your own land. You, you know, you're coming back with life-changing amounts of gold, silver. Exactly. Not only to your regular Scandinavian who's going to look at that and say, well, I want a little piece of that. You've also got you know, people from surrounding areas who are looking at it and thinking, well, why can't I? And I guess, I know certainly if it was, if, you know, let, let's say I was going to go on a raid to, to England and I had to pick a, a group of people, um, the reality is that you were, you're going to pick the best warriors. So if, you have, if I have a, a Scandinavian man and a Slavic man and they both can fight, but one, the Slavic man fights a lot better than the Scandinavian man. I'm going to take the Slavic man because at yeah. the end of the day, I want to stay alive. And exactly. it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come down to, to, to you know, you, where you live or or anything like that. It, it comes down to the to survival, and you you yeah. go with who's going to give you that best chance. Exactly, and that that's um, I, the, the the Vikings, the Scandinavians in general, were very pragmatic about those kinds of things. It looks like. Um, we also see other interesting things, like for instance, the island of Orland, the or the archipelago of Orland uh, around uh, um, or, or just in between Sweden and, and Finland. Um, this is populated by by, by Germanic speaking Scandinavians, so what we might call Swedes or Svear in the in the Viking Age, and and they uh, they have a burial custom um, where they put little clay tablets of of bear paws or beaver paws on 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 urns um, uh, that comes from the Russian area, from from the area uh, sort of like uh, around Stara Yaladoka, just uh, inland from Saint Petersburg, and and so that's in, that's interesting, right? Because then we have a a very uh, a strong mix of culture. Once you start, you know, especially fashioning your 
your burial rituals after a what is quote unquote uh, foreign, right? That means that that uh, culture must be very important um, in that area. If we look at um, the island of Gotland, right, that that area as as a place, as sort of a midway point between uh, the, the Scandinavian area and and the eastern uh, Baltic coast. Um, it has influence in terms of like um, building styles from 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 the the Baltic areas, uh, a building style that then later on uh, seems to seep into Sweden. So there's a sort of like a a cultural and architectural uh, influence there from from over from the east. Um, um, going to Iceland, well, what it looks like is that the the early population of Iceland was very diverse, actually. We have a lot of Gaelic peoples from Scotland and Ireland. We also have Sami people from uh, from the Norwegian area, um, all coming to Iceland along with these Scandinavians um, or Germanic-speaking Scandinavians, the Norwegians, and possibly also Danes and Swedes, right? Um, so it's a melting pot more than anything else, at least genetically. What scholars have found, or researchers, have found that uh, the Icelandic population becomes more homogenized and closer linked to the Scandinavian ma mainland uh, from the medieval period and up to modern times. Right. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, it is, definitely. I mean, I guess countries wouldn't have had borders the same way that we have them now. And I mean, the, the Scandinavian countries weren't even under one you know, one ruler, they, they were separate kingdoms. So let alone, you know, you've got these different kingdoms within a country. So you're not going to necessarily know where other people are from or or really even care as much, I, I guess. Yeah. The, the point is if you can talk to them or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> like and whether you can communicate either through your own language or through a third language. Um, for, I, yeah. I would say, I guess as well, it's whether you can mutually benefit each other. And yeah. I think that's probably the main point that if it doesn't matter, you know, where you're from, what you do, if if you can help me, then you're probably going to get on out here. You know, if you can, if you can benefit from somebody, from knowing somebody, then it, other, other things are just superficial. They don't really matter. It's... No. No, it doesn't look like it, at least. I mean, of course, at different times, people um, across the world have had ideas about another people, um, mm. uh, have negative uh, associations with another people. Usually this originates in some ancient war or something like that. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's a natural thing for humans to, to, to think like that. But, but one thing that we can definitely say about Scandinavians um, in the Viking Age is that they 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 didn't have uh, this um, this like tendency to rank people in hierarchies um, as we, for instance, see um, nowadays uh, and have seen, especially just before World War Two um, in in Europe, where you know everybody was sort of like ranked in these hierarchies, and you have to like stay within the border of uh, of that particular area that you're supposed to live in because of you know some kind of random reasoning that we came up with. I mean, yeah. it's a, it, it's a, it, people didn't have these concepts of borders in the same way. And I mean, saying that, I guess it's strange how 
so unfortunately the the the, not the Vikings or the Northern mythology has almost become a spearhead for some of these these groups who do think like that. Yeah. It's, I mean, is there a reason why, or do you know of a reason why that might have happened through your study? And if you kind of come across anything that might explain why these groups have attached themselves to to the Vikings the way that they have. Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting because um, uh, uh, what we're what we what we start seeing in the in the 19th century, especially, are people who are theorizing about um, uh, this idea of the Aryan race, and um, we see uh, in Europe we see that this uh, uh, this idea that uh, uh, that uh, Europeans are uh, three kinds of Europeans basically, and we have to. Uh, the, the the light Aryans uh, uh, up north, and then we have the sort of more uh, more brownish, uh, sometimes redheadish kind of uh, Celtic Europeans, and then uh, as they say, more swarthy uh, um, Southern Europeans. And this is a ranking hierarchy that's uh, be, being used internally in Europe uh, to uh, uh, to separate Europeans from one another and. Uh, and, and establish uh, hierarchies. You know, when I was a kid, I had a very old atlas, or it wasn't that old, it was from the 50s. And it, it had a whole like section on races. And it was really interesting to see how, you know, the British race, for instance, was this uh, very blonde, blue-eyed uh, uh, fella. Um, <laughs> that okay. was the original British race, and <laughs> you don't see many of them anymore. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't know if you saw that many of them back then. No. Either. I mean, it's just like in Scandinavia, we have different hair colors and yeah. and a lot of other things, right? It's, it's there's diversity in in the populations. No, so, yeah, I think the, the stereotypical um, Scandinavian is Scandinavian is a, a blonde head kind exactly. of almost Adonis type figure, you know, that, that's kind yeah. of the thing that people assume is this, this blonde head Thor looking, looking <laughs> man. And it's like, eh, I don't know. I don't see too many of them about. There's some here and there, but it's, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> no more than anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, well, genetically, yes, there's, there's, there's more in Scandinavia because the, 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 the genes for, for blonde hair are have seem to have their epicenter of development in Scandinavia. But yeah, I mean, you can find that uh, here in, in Colorado too. You know, just blonde hair, blue eyed types of people. I mean, and 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 that's um, that's something to consider. That you know, it's a, in terms of genetics, this is a development that just happened, right? Is it, like it's, as the genetic developments do. They just happen, right? Because you have uh, certain uh, uh, certain conditions for um, for for a certain type of, of of traits being favored, right? And 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 so that that's that's really the situation that we're dealing with here. Um, but you also find blue, uh, blondes and blue eyes and and, and such things in, in the Russian area. It's not just the uh, Scandinavians. And it, Probably wasn't the Vikings who brought it there. It probably just existed there for, um, you know, for several millennia. But um, but just to, to go back to all of this with like why are Vikings being used as as sort of the emblem of of some kind of pure European race? Um, 
so so uh, up until World War One, um, it was very fashionable to consider the Teutons, right? The the Germanic peoples of Germany, uh, these uh, the emblematic uh, master race in in that context. But uh, then something happens in in the British area and and uh, and also over here in the in North America in the U.S. where well we had that world war now we don't like the Germans anymore. Well, um, when we talk about Teutons, then let's talk about the Scandinavians instead. That's how that then uh, comes into play, because before then, uh, Scandinavians were considered like these weird, odd, you know, hillbillies. I <laughs> think go go read uh, Mary Wollstonecraft on uh, uh, her her journey through Scandinavia. It's really interesting that like, she's talking about us as these hillbillies, and and she's like separating Danes and Swedes. Like uh, the, uh, the, the 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 Danes are more reliable, uh, um, but they're also lazy or something like that. You know, she talks about it in the exact same way that she would talk about uh, peoples uh, that she would be encountering in Africa. You know. So, so that's really interesting to consider too. The Scandinavians weren't uh, uh, back in the 1700s uh, and 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 the early 1800s. They weren't, you know, necessarily considered part of the good company of uh, of white Europeans. That would be the English, right? So that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, you had it, it, Icelanders um, had to to you know literally write books. Directed to the audience of the uh, uh, of, of mainland Europe, telling them, "No, it's not full of monsters and and weird up here. Like we're just normal people." <laughs> I guess it is because it's it's detached, and obviously yeah. it is. I mean, England is to a point, but it also we kind of force our, ourselves on everybody else. <laughs> Whereas with, with with Iceland and Norway and Sweden, they're kind of almost. They're the part of Europe, but they're also separated from mainland yeah. Europe. So people do look at things as as different, or the you know other. Yeah, and the Scandinavians too. They have these uh, self perceptions that are based off of this. Where the farther away you are from mainland Europe, the more awesome you are too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so the Norwegians are more awesome Scandinavians than the Danes because I mean we're 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 too close to Germany and those kinds of things. Like uh, people think about these uh, these things in, in in these curious ways, and um, uh, of course there's there's nothing inherently uh, awesome about uh, Scandinavians more than there are about any other people in the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have culture and and we have uh, thoughts and ideas that have been produced by by brilliant people um, uh, for the uh, as long as as as, um, as writing has existed in Scandinavia, we can see that. Snorristurbson, um, if he did in fact write all the things that he wrote in uh, or that people say that he wrote uh, in in Iceland, he was a genius. Like he was a brilliant, intelligent man, um, and, and you have similar people from Norway and Sweden and and Denmark, and of course you have that from everywhere else too, right? Um, the, so so uh, the Nordic mythology, the saga literature, all of this stuff is just a Scandinavian uh, contribution uh, to uh, uh, to the world uh, literature uh, to. Um, um, the intellectual pursuit of humanity in general, right? And it doesn't. And yeah, I mean, personally, I identify with it 
a lot of other people do, and I think that's great. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make it much better than, than anything else. I mean, good thoughts arise across the world, you know. In, yeah, it's, it's, it's just part of, <clears throat> it's part of world history. And I think sometimes people get wrapped up into this is, this is my part, this is your part, this is your part over here, and then and they act like these, we, it can't all mix and can't coexist together, when the reality is that, you know, we're all humans and it's all, ultimately, it's all our history together because it's what's kind of navigated us from the beginning of Homo sapiens through to what we are now is a collective of all the different cultures and it's... Yeah. It's what's got us to where we are, you know. I think some people do forget ultimately that we are one single, you know, one single human race. It's not a case of us and them all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's sad that people it's sad that people think like that. And especially and for us, it's particularly sad because seeing it happen in something that we love and that we, you know, we, we're so attached to and seeing people who try and take it and use it to to promote things that are just ultimately ridiculous yeah it is and the the real problem here is also that you know uh, if you especially if you start thinking in these terms of like oh who can think for instance say who can uh, use nordic mythology as sort of their path in life or something like that right if you start thinking of, of that in terms of like ownership and you then have like this group of white people over here saying, well, this only belongs to us, right? Um, well, the next question is then, which, which one of these white people does it belong to? I mean, the Icelanders wrote it down, <laughs> yeah. but, but the, 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 the Norwegians and Danes and Swedes seem, seem to have, uh, you know, created the stories sometime before Iceland even became populated. Um, so, so does this stuff belong to the Icelanders who wrote it down in the books? Well, I mean, uh, as a Dane uh, who has been uh, part of an, a, an empire oppressing the Icelanders, I, of course, think that it's about time the Icelanders get, uh, get all of this stuff back, just like the Norwegians should. Um, we still have their, some of their books hanging around in, in libraries in, uh, in, in Copenhagen. But um, um, so the books then belongs to them, right? But the cultural content doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily. And uh, and then you know we, we, we can like start just rolling the ball from there and say well okay so 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 the Icelanders could tell the Norwegians and the Danes because they have that stuff in the books oh you guys can't can't borrow this <laughs> because we wrote it down you know and where does that end right well yeah I assume that the stories didn't necessarily even begin I mean obviously it became popular and most. Um, notoriably for, for being in Sweden and, and Norway and Denmark. But I imagine they didn't just get created by one person overnight oh, and, no. and, and spread from there. They, you know, they've, they've dwindled through and come you know, naturally from all over. They, you know, it will something that will progress over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the stories will have taken bits from here, there, and, and, yeah. and, and grown organically. So yeah. you can't put a pinpoint on this is ours, this is where it started. No, absolutely not. And that's the thing. The greatest example of this is actually one of the biggest Germanic heroes, Sigurd the Dragonslayer. His, his, his story probably has its origin in the Franks, right? Mm-hmm. 
in in that Rhineland area. Um, now he his story exists as a, as a German poem um, composed in Old High German. Um, it exists as, as a, um, a runic inscription, the largest runic inscription that we have in Sweden, um, the Ramsund stone. It exists on uh, uh, Norwegian uh, uh, wood carvings um, from, from the 1100s and, uh, and 1200s in the stave churches. And then it exists in the, in, in the epic poetry and, and in saga literature in Iceland and in Faroese and Danish ballads. Uh, that were probably, uh, you know, that are probably very late. Uh, you know, maybe they have their root in the, roots in the 1400s, but definitely uh, they, they're probably most of them are from the 19th century, right? Um, and, and I believe there are also traces of the story in, in the British area, in, in England. And ultimately, I mean, it's a story about a guy who kills a dragon. And how many stories don't, uh, doesn't humanity not have about that? You know, <laughs> like you can find that anywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, you take a you take a bare bones of a story, and yeah. then you attach your personal kind of identity and, and things that are happening around you to to bulk the story out and make it per, more personal to the people that you're telling it to, and yeah. then you've kind of got a, a fresh story that's. But it's not really its own story. Still, you know, it's just borrowed from somewhere else. Yeah, and that's and that's how stories work. I mean, we scholars have uh, have found out that oh, uh, the story about uh, Little Red Riding Hood seems to be like six thousand years ago, uh, years old, <laughs> or something like that. Like incredibly old. You can find versions of the uh, of Little Red Riding Hood um, across the Eurasian continent, and I believe also in Africa, right? Um, it, and back in the 19th century, we had we had a couple of German scholars like sitting there reading this and going like, "Oh, this is definitely a Bavarian story." It's like, "Yeah, right, dude." <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it, I guess it's almost whoever makes it popular owns it. That's yeah. kind of how it's how it seems. It, 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 you know, it, with with these stories, you'll never find you know ground zero. You'll never find that you know that that initial person who. Who wrote it or created it? Who thought it? Oh, but it's whoever gets it out there to the most people is attributed with the with the ownership almost, and it's not necessarily right. Exactly, and that's you know that's something that we should think about too. When we just go back to some of this stuff about like who who is this, who looks more Scandinavian or something like that. You know, it's really interesting to consider that based of all of this racial hierarchy that that. that immersed in the 19th century and, and early 20th century, right? Scandinavians also have ideas about who looks like a Scandinavian. And, and, and we also have, you know, these very curious uh, ways of talking about ethnicities and considering people part or not part of, of, of the Scandinavian ethnicities. Um, so, so that means, for instance, if, if you're a, if if your mom comes from Italy and your dad is uh, is is Danish or something like that, then then you're half Italian, <laughs> you know, um, and and that's that's apparently something that's important for people to to think about that that this person is half Italian instead of that they're just Danish and has some Italian background, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We still talk about uh, people uh, with uh, immigrant background, even though they're like third generation like third-generation immigrants, right? 
So, and, and that's an interesting thing, especially when you, when as a Scandinavian, when you're sitting over here in the United States and you're, you're seeing these, these people, um, who are generally white and then they, then they, they link up with the Nordic past and, and, uh, and, um, and some of them get like these racist ideas about mm -hmm. how that works. Right. And then, and then I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> if, if there's just like, okay, sure, yeah, you've got like some, some Scandinavian ancestry. But if there's just like one Irish dude in there or, or, <laughs> or some Italian or, or, or Hungarian, I don't know what, right? You know, you wouldn't necessarily classify as like true Scandinavian to Scandinavians <laughs> in Scandinavia. Well, no, Which, you wouldn't. It's, <laughs> I mean... I guess stuff like that, where, where like you say, if your parents, I, you know, your mum's Irish and your dad is Italian, that only works for a couple of generations until you get far enough back where there's that many different mixes of, of people. And, you know, when you start going back a thousand years, there's that many different mixes that you can't specifically say you are 100% from you know one area it just it would it's ridiculous to even think that that's how it how it works yeah and and then and that's that's you know then when we talk about you know uh, like people who have their origins in the middle east or in far east asia or in india or or the or in the african continent right who live in in northern europe and um who live in britain for instance what what should prevent them from 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 you know uh, taking up the, the the cultural heritage of of the the region that they're in? I mean, I'd say that's pretty natural. If, if anything, right? You you go to another culture, you live there, and you bring something to it, and you also adopt something from it, right? Um, and it's the same thing with the um, with with all of those who have mixed racial backgrounds, right? I mean, what what makes them more, say, for instance, African than than, than Scandinavian? Um, <laughs> when it comes to that, yeah, of course they they belong just as much in <laughs> in our world as as anywhere else. Yeah, and I mean, I guess. I completely, I completely forgot what I was going to say then. <laughs> well, it also got a little, a little muddled the way that I was uh, saying that. I, I don't know if it got a little too convoluted. <laughs> no, um, I think for for us, we might have gone a little bit off off the topic of what yeah. this podcast was necessarily going to be about. But this is something that we both feel quite passionate about. It's it's the way that we actually met was was through us having negative comments on on our posts from using you know models from diff different ethnic backgrounds and you know having negative people leaving comments that were quote unquote Scandinavian not necessarily Scandinavians but who identified with this you know this type of you know identified with the Vikings with the Norse mythology and they were upset that we you know we'd chosen to use models of a certain colour or from a, a certain cultural background. Um, and we've always been really keen to to stand against that because that's not how we believe and that's not how we think anybody should believe. We think if you want to enjoy, you know, the Vikings and learn about the Vikings and learn about Norse pleasure, feel free. Just why not? We want to, speak, especially you as a 
as a scholar, you want to spread it to as many people as possible and then to educate as many people as possible. Um, so yeah, we might have gone a little bit off topic, but it's it's certainly something that we're both we're both passionate about and, and trying to make sure that you you always need to distance yourself from those people, which is sad to say. It's mm. it's sad to even think like that, that that almost because you're because you're interested in it's kind of got to the point now where because you're interested in, in Norse mythology and because you're interested in Vikings, some people out there look at that and automatically will label you a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, like wearing a Milner around your neck or, or doing a certain thing. Some people out there, because of this small group of, of let's put it bluntly, dickheads, <laughs> you know, like you, because of this small group of people, like, they you always have to explain yourself as not being attached exactly. to that, which is which is such a sad thing to to be. Yeah, I mean, this I, I became a scholar of this field because of my love for the stories and for for that culture, uh, that cultural background. This is part of something that I grew up with. Um, it, it, for Scandinavians, you know, the Viking past is is always there in some way or another. Um, even if they don't really care to engage with it, and so so I be, I became a scholar of this, and and um, and and part of that is to of course uh, offer up to the world the awesome things that that my cultural background ha- has, and 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 that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you come from in that regard, um, as long as you find it interesting, right? And and yeah, it's it is it is saddening. It's saddening to see. That there are then people who use this as some kind of, um, as some way to like exclude others, and and also because of their activities, I then have to like explain to people, no, no, I'm I'm not one of those people. I'm yeah. just some guy who grew up with this. Exactly, <laughs> right? and it's, I, it's so sad to so sad that you have to explain yourself as explain yourself as not being racist. It's yeah. it's it's a sad way for it to be, and I mean. Especially with with now with with Instagram with Facebook, the way that you can spread knowledge to the world, it's it's almost like some people that do think like that. They want to put it out there that they are they're Scandinavian, they are Viking. But then it's like, look how good it is. Oh, but wait a minute, you can't enjoy it. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, it's what, like what, what? <laughs> so you want to you want to tell people how amazing it is, but then you if they so oh, yeah, quite, quite like that. I, you know, I, I like reading the editors. I, I like the designs. I like the artwork. But then suddenly they're wrong because they grew up in a different part of the world. I mean, it, you know, we live in, in a global society now where you can freely enjoy, enjoy what you want, like yeah. what you want. It's what's yeah, the just, point in? That's the thing. Just be respectful about it, right? I mean, that's it. Um, it, it, it Treat it, treat whatever cultural stuff you you pick up in a book or or, or elsewhere um, with with the respect that it deserves, right? Um, and that also means then not to be exclusion uh, exclusivist with it. Uh, mm-hmm. If you ask me, that's that's also part of respecting the, uh, that cultural heritage. Uh, you know, one one of the things that gets me sometimes is that um, when I on my YouTube channel, for instance, I, I sometimes people comment like things about like. Um, where, where they where they tell me um, that uh, that I should not, 
uh, I don't know, like uh, uh, polluted this material with, you know, their unwanted uh, uh, interpretations or something like that. And I'm just like, who are you to do that? Like, who are you to say that? You're some you're somebody from from North America. Have you like did did, did you walk on those uh, gra- grave mounds of ancient Viking kings as a child? <laughs> you know, yeah, and like, why are you telling somebody else to not do that? <laughs> and it's also if you put it if you put it bluntly, it's what's what's more offensive to to like the Norse flooding and things that we love? Is it somebody who is white and 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 takes it and and doesn't do the research, doesn't look into it, but uses it as a as a cover to to just be an asshole and and promote the things that, that are just wholly wrong and and you know think that way. Or is it somebody who's from a different culture, who's you know who's of a different skin color, but reads the editors, enjoys the editors, takes the time to learn it and and really kind of you know just enjoys what it is. Which one's more offensive? Yeah, for me, it's always going to be, it's going to be the person who, 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 because most of these people who are in these groups and think that way, they've never read the the editor or the, or the editors. They've never read the sagas. They've not listened to podcasts like this or or Jackson Crawford, and they haven't done they haven't done those things. What they do is they they see that some people have attached themselves to this for this idea, you know, for this ideology, and they think, oh well, it must it must be like that or somewhere in there, they must have thought that way. And these people just attach to it because they've got nothing better to do with this, with their time. Yeah. And rather than actually look, you know, do the readings, do the research and look into it, they just cling to it and, and, you know, make them think that they're a Viking because they stick a valve on the back of the truck. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and that's also the, 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 that's what I was saying before, right? Like, I mean, at, at, when, when we when we take this uh, way of thinking to the extreme, right, which it will eventually happen with this kind of stuff, then we end up in a situation where I, because I have a Danish background, can tell you because you have an English background that oh, you can't you can't play with this stuff because this is only my toys, right? And then you could a Norwegian could do the same to me, or an Icelander can do the same to me, and and it's like what what is it there for then? It's just for for a small select group of uh, of of 300,000 people on an island to, to read this. Story. Yeah, that's it. It, it. It's it's almost like it, it's only for you to enjoy. It's like yeah. having this amazing thing that's... Because Norse mythology is absolutely, you know, it's fascinating. It doesn't matter where you come from on, on you know, in the world. Like, if you listen to to somebody speak like yourself, who, who knows about it, and, and you tell the stories, it doesn't matter where you're from, they're good stories. They're entertaining. So what's the point of having this such amazing thing that you kind of you're not willing to share with everyone? And it's yeah. equally the other way around. Like I the, you know, some of the, the stories from the African cultures, I'd love to be to, to learn them and be told about them because yeah. it's interesting, it's world it's world history. It doesn't matter what little plot of plot of grass you're born on or whatever. It's it's it, it, it's it's human history and it's all interesting. Exactly. But, and that's that's I mean, when I was a kid, I I I heard plenty of uh, of folk tales from from the African uh, continent. Uh, I nowadays I really enjoy reading uh, um, Native American mythology from, from mm-hmm. different places in North America. Um, uh, when I as I. Uh, as I, when I lived as a as a child in Greenland, I, I heard all the the Inuit folk tales that uh, and and I've always enjoyed 
um, the, the the curious and mystical elements of of these stories, and and that's that's part of you know that's that's one of the things that I think has made me smarter about my 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 own mythology. <laughs> like having having heard and read about the, these other mythologies out there, um, I I feel like has enriched my understanding of my own culture. Right, so that's yeah. also a way that you can use it. So. Like you said, the, the, ultimately, the, the bottom line is, is it's respect. And if you if you read something and learn something and give it the respect it deserves, then who cares where you're from? Who cares, you know, what colour your skin is? It, it, it's irrelevant. It's all about, you know, everybody enjoying it and, and being respectful for for what it is. Yeah, exactly. I very much agree with that. Because this is something that we both love, you don't want it to become associated with people that not only are they just wrong in what they're saying, they has no you know no historical basis in in the mythology. So it's not like it's even based on something that's true. So you you don't want that getting out there, especially when it it is just complete kind of yeah made up yeah no it's bullshit. Just- it is. It is just one hundred percent bullshit. <laughs> That's it. That's what we should call the episode. <laughs> yeah, one hundred bullshit. Racism is one hundred percent bullshit. <laughs> That's it. Right. It's been. It's been fun. Um, and then we'll we'll have a talk about the um, what we can. The next one should be about. And equally yeah. to anybody listening, if you have any ideas, either give Matthias a, a message on Instagram or message us on Instagram. Um, if you want to watch, watch your handle, uh, I I think you can just you know find me under Matthias Nordvig actually. Matthias Nordvig, I think yeah. it is. Yeah, we're Horns of Odin on Instagram, and then if you can just give us some ideas, let us know what you think about the episode, and also just let us know if you've got any topics you want to hear us discuss and go into on the on the next episode or future episodes. All right, yeah, I, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, yeah, this has been an interesting talk. Um, and uh, I, I hope you guys have also enjoyed it. So until next time. A ship, uh, which is adorned um beautifully carved carved um like the i don't know the ferrari of the time basically yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly it, it's not you know it's not a shabby little thing is it you, oh absolutely not. <laughs> i i wouldn't be, be be too bothered if that was used as my uh burial ships so. <laughs> right <laughs> and and an interesting thing is also uh, you know when we look into the construction of the ship itself the mast is very weak, and we don't know if that is because it uh, it was built just to be a ship for burial, or if if, if there's a if it was used for a particular way uh, or for a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wouldn't be able to withstand the winds out in the North Sea. So okay. uh, so it, uh, either it was used as uh, if it was a functional ship, it was used. In the fjords, in uh, in close in Scandinavia, yeah, or it wasn't used at all, and it was simply built for that particular purpose, which almost kind of 
exemplifies the, the, the use of it for, you know, being used for two females. Mm-hmm. If it was built just for that purpose and it being so ornate and such a beautiful thing, that kind of even lifts them up to even a higher status of mm-hmm. that you would go through the effort. You know, these must have been two really important people to go through that effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, everything in that grave indicates that uh, at least one of them, I mean, maybe both of them, were important people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we have we have so many different items. Uh, uh, and again, uh, beautifully carved uh, items. Um, um, the chests. I believe there's a sled in there too. There's 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 so much um, mm-hmm. uh, important stuff in there. And I don't know if this theory is still circulating or it has been refuted, but um, earlier there was a theory that half of the ship was actually, um, or that it was only half of the ship that was covered to begin with. So so that um, you would have the other half of the ship sort of like standing outside of the grave mound as sort of a ship that looks like it's sailing into the earth. I mean that's a okay. that's a that's a pretty hardcore display if you ask me. Like people would be able to uh, pass that and see a ship sailing into the death realm right there. Almost um, the greatest tombstone ever created. Right. <laughs> if, if that theory is true, it, I yeah. know that it has been contested um, mm-hmm. by some, but I don't know where where archaeologists and yeah. other scholars have landed on it. It's based off of a pollen analysis on uh, of the deck. That indicates that half of it uh, was uh, uh, receiving pollen um, later on, but the other one wasn't. So, so that should that might suggest that. But you know, right. there could also be other interpretations. Nonetheless, if it if it was the case, right, then you have these really important females uh, with all of this very valuable stuff, with a beautifully adorned, nicely carved ship that stands right there as a display of sailing into the death realm. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's no mean feat to, to create, is it? It's, it's, oh, no. <laughs> it's taking some effort, um, so it, you're not going to waste it on anybody. You know, they've got it's got to be for somebody who you hold in a particular high regard. Exactly. And then we have to, of course, uh, ask ourselves, how do we interpret that? Are we dealing with uh, some... Um, I mean, we don't know anything about uh, whether or not polygamy was uh, was something back then. Uh, so mm-hmm. maybe they could be two wives of a king, um, okay. two beloved wives of a king, and the king wanted to uh, really d- display how that uh, you know the, 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 the burial. But then again, you, you you have other questions that still have like, how did they die at the same time? Uh, yeah, and uh, and such. <laughs> Um, we could also go in a different direction and say uh, this is a term uh, and, and interpret this grave as simply a, um, a, a, a powerful woman or two powerful women um, uh, who had status of their own that, that was not tied yeah. to a male figure. And then we have sort of a more um, a, a less patriarchal uh, interpretation of, of the grave in that sense. Because the one where you know it's a man who's who's the agent who makes sure that uh, uh, these women get buried in that way uh, is a in a sense a more patriarchal interpretation mm-hmm. of the gravesite. 
Um, if you go the other direction, then the, the females themselves have value uh, in and of themselves and aren't necessarily tied to a male figure who instigates all of this. We don't know much about that situation. All we can uh, really say is that, well, important women were buried in a very important grave right there. Yeah. Intrinsic so can, value. <laughs> yeah, you can only take the, the facts from it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, throughout the mythology, from what I've seen, there seems to be different instances of females in, like, powerful roles. I mean, the Valkyries have a pretty powerful full job. I mean, obviously you've got somebody like Lagather or Brunhild. Um, I think I, in the, the taunting of Thor, where you've got Odin and Thor kind of throwing these insults to each other, there's a mention of a female berserker. Mm. Um, so, you know, you, you find these kind of things that, that come up. You would assume that they must be based on some sort of, not necessarily the truth in in the mythical, you know, that they are a mythical being in, in what they do, but but some sort of truth in that they're modelled on a, fe a female or, or the idea of that at least a, a woman has the choice to pick up arms and fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have we have at least what appears to be a cultural concept of that. And then, of course, we have to ask ourselves: What are all the implications? Um, what are we um, like? Uh, what are the the, the 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 complications with all of this? One of the things that we see with uh, both Herver and Lagatha is that they uh, they seem to be dressing up as males when they do it. So, what that indicates is perhaps that um, well, if you were a female who went to war, then you gave up your status as a woman in that sense. Okay the conceptual status at least. And then we're talking some kind of concept of cross-dressing, which we see in many cultures. This mm -hmm. is a very common human phenomenon that, um, that you know, um, uh, gender roles or social roles, um, there's, the, there's the sex, which is the biological aspect of it, and then there's the gender, which is the uh, social aspect of it. And a person can, um, in many different cultures, um, transition to 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 another gender, mm -hmm. um, and and then when, but the thing is that when they do this, this comes with a lot of uh, social implications, taboo, and and a lot of rules. So um, and, and a, a case is um, in Albania uh, where um, um, there's been a long tradition for uh, for women being heads of households. And then they're considered patriarchs, and then they have to function as males. Um, another great example is Queen Victoria, who, mm -hmm. when you walk around England and, and you look at her st statues, and also in Canada for that matter, uh, it says him on them. <laughs> that's that's a that's an aspect of this gender bending too that happens. Like she wanted to take on the role as patriarch of the empire, mm -hmm. and so therefore. She says, "Well, you have to refer to me as man." <laughs> okay. Um, and, and it's it's a cultural thing that just happens. And of course, if you're a person of power, like she was, you can define how yeah. that works, right? No one's um, gonna argue, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and and that, that's that could also be the case in Scandinavia uh, mm -hmm. back in the Viking Age. Um, but of course, you know, 
depending on which cultural patterns that already exist, these people will have uh, more, or they they will they could have a harder time, so to speak. Okay. That really that really depends on you know the attitude of the people around. When it comes to 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 if we if we should go back a second to to dressing up as a male, could that be down to the not necessarily that they want to dress male, it's just that those clothes are almost tried and tested in that format of war. So that is almost the more comfortable or I, I can't imagine a dress would be good even if you had the choice mm. so would be the oh, best choice for battle. Yeah, I mean definitely there's there's a practical aspect to this mm-hmm. as well. But I think it says a lot when somebody is buried in okay. in war gear, right? Um because our next question is then what about all these females who are buried as as what we could, would call a typological female uh, burial? Um, both where where sex and gender correspond to one another in 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 a biological and a culturally conceptual sense, mm-hmm. could they have you know could a woman like that have um, walked around as a warrior for a period in her life and then you know gone back to being um, a, a woman of a household? Uh, we don't know, right? You know, yes. there's there's also another aspect that we have to consider that I didn't touch upon when we talked about the skeletons. Um, I'm not sure about this. I don't really know much about it, but um, but we have to question: Do these uh, skeletons um, show any evidence of actually having been to war? Mm-hmm. Are there damages to the bones and such things? I have no yeah. idea about that. That's of course an aspect to consider too, when we talk about it in the sense of being a warrior as a profession. Yeah. Yeah, but if nothing else, what we could say is our 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 knowledge of it is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know if it was possible for a woman to be sort of a have a conceptually traditional female role, and then uh, switch to a male one for war purposes, and then come back to the female role. It's a possibility, mm-hmm. um, and then of course somebody who dies. Um, in that role as that warrior who's female and probably gendered male in that context, well, they would be buried as as that figure, I guess. I guess maybe part of it is also what what ultimately maybe defines your life. Some may have first and foremost been kind of more feminine and, and maybe if needed would have picked up a weapon, in which case I think most people would. It, it's not a rule. It's if, if somebody is attacking your village or attacking your settlement, you do what you've got to do. It's yeah. not, you know, does that make you a warrior? I, I think, it, you know, if, you, if you're taking up arms and you, you, you're fighting for, for your life, I, you could argue it does. Mm. Um, or in some That's- cases, are you going out and choosing to not necessarily defend yourself, but then going and actively raiding yeah. and attacking and, and and being a warrior, you know, proactively rather than defensively. Absolutely. that's And that's a very important point that you're raising right there. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> necessity 
uh, brings about new situations in life all the time, right? And I'm sure that we would expect a uh, a, a a woman in the fjord in Norway uh, to defend her village if she has to. I mean that that. Uh, I, I can't really imagine a, a, a scenario of, uh, where that wouldn't be the case <laughs> in some sense or another. Um, so that, and that's also, that this points in direction of something else that we need to consider. And that's, of course, our modern concepts of what it means to be male and female. Mm-hmm. And we have a very, uh, in many ways, constricted idea of that, um, thanks to cultural developments over the last hundred years. Um, but just... Like, let's just establish some facts uh, around this stuff. Well, we can look at the, um, the Crusades. The Crusades, um, I'm not saying there were female warriors in the Crusades. I don't know anything about that. But we do know that a crusade um, is not, you know, was not back in the medieval period the way that we think about it now. It's like just a bunch of men in, uh, in metal going off to the Holy Land to fight. Uh, it was a, uh, a sort of a, a procession of men and women and children, and you had um, uh, people selling goods and a lot of different things. It was sort of a whole uh, village economy moving through uh, the <laughs> Europe and, yeah. and the, uh, the Middle East uh, at the time. And in the same way, I mean, we see, we go back to World War I, World War II, I mean, women are involved with the war efforts there in a in a in an incredible scales. So the idea of a woman who just you know hangs around in a house while her Viking uh, uh, male warrior is out fighting, and then as soon as some Vikings show up, and then she screams and and runs off with the kids, uh, I I yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think even you know, in in if you put in a modern aspect like if you're backed into a corner male or female is irrelevant you you do what has to be done to protect you and yours and those you love it's it's not a male thing a female thing i think it's just a a natural impulse that there's that aspect of self-preservation but there's also the inverse right male or female if you don't have the um i don't know uh, the psychological uh, Mm -hmm. makeup so to speak, to defend yourself, then you won't. Yeah, whether whether you're male or female. <laughs> yeah, it's fight or flight, and yeah. you you've either got it or you've not, and that's that's irrelevant, like you say, of of, of either way you go. Um, I think the last thing I want to ask, just before we kind of like wrap up, um, was one. It's just something that I kind of picked up on one of the when listening to through the sagas was the idea of, of the marriage night and whether you, you could tell me whether it's true or not, of that they would wait kind of three nights before consummating the marriage. And I think in the, the story where, where um, Freya sends for, for his wife and the, he, she, she says he's going to have to wait, is it nine nights? Mm. Um, and that's kind yeah. of, he sees that as this unbelievable, yeah. un- unbelievable thing. Is there any, is that kind of like a, a, a well-known thing that you would a man would be assumed to wait three nights before consummating a new marriage? Because obviously, in, in modern way, with the way we look back at kind of like the med, the typical medieval times, every kind of like you have to consummate that night, or it's 
it's invalid it's it's not you know it's not seen as a real marriage so that kind of surprised me this idea that you would be expected to wait three nights yeah so so this is this is a little embarrassing because uh, my my former uh, uh, supervisor uh, <laughs> actually uh, um, uh, one of my supervisors for my my PhD is probably the expert on on medieval marriage in <laughs> in, okay. uh, in Scandinavia. But but I I I wouldn't say that my knowledge is uh, is that comprehensive that I could give you a, a similar detailed uh, go through. Of, of of the different traditions that are mm-hmm. in, uh, involved, but I mean, what it, what we know is, of course, that marriages are, ha, have always been a ritualized uh, a process, and what we what we see in in all cultures is that it involves different ideas of taboo. The important thing about a marriage is that uh, we have two kin groups who uh, through those individuals that are being married are uh, combining resources in in some sense or another in a Scandinavian context and particularly in the Icelandic context what we have is a transfer of of uh, duties that have to do with honor right uh, aside from of course also resource sharing so that means then that uh, people um, in different ways, depending on status and and gender, um, become liable for each other's honor. So, if you have two families on the, uh, of the same status, who where uh, male and female um, uh, become uh, conjoined in marriage, then uh, the female uh, the female's uh, uh, kin group is uh, um, sort of uh, responsible for for supporting the male kin group. Mm-hmm. And, and this comes with privileges and also with, um, uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with the sort of rules that you have to follow that you might not always be particularly happy about. Okay. Uh, so um, so that's, that's an aspect to take into consideration. That's always the basis for a marriage. That's, that's the sharing of, uh, of resources and the fact that you can join um, uh, responsibilities, in a sense, this doesn't always work out. The sagas are the greatest example of this, you know, of how it actually doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But it's the principle of it, and and yeah, it, that that is a ritualized process. It's not just something you shake on. You don't just shake your hand and that's it. Um, there would have probably been a period in um, in the beginning. Um, where you're waiting uh, for different reasons, mm-hmm. um, we have to make sure. Since we are, since we becoming so reliant upon each other, we have to make sure uh, be, upon each other. We have to make sure that we um, are actually aligned and we can trust each other. That might be part of that waiting period. Yeah, I as, guess. As, I guess maybe if it's almost an arranged marriage in the sense of it's it's a you know, political reason mm-hmm. that the, they may not know each other. So maybe those few days grace kind of allows you to, to know if, the, you know, is this what I really want or is this something that 
Yeah, and the cultural codes. Like, consider this: if if theoretically there was a waiting period of three days, or maybe a week, or or nine days, whatever, um, after you've had the wedding party where the two families uh, meet each other for the first time and everybody is involved, that you can use that waiting period to deliberate over uh, whether or not somebody uh, fell, uh, f- followed the cost- customs at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, at that feast, did somebody do something egregious? Did somebody do uh, something great? You know, those kinds of things could be involved in that regard. But what I want to say about the story um, of Freyr and Gerder um, and that waiting period that you're referring to right there, that one is, is, a very, um, is a very peculiar case because, first of all, a, I'm not sure we're talking about marriage. Um, most uh, most scholars have noted that it is not a love union and it is not an equal union. Those are some of the things to take into consideration. We have the Godfrey, who is literally um, explicitly horny. That's what that is in the beginning of the story. Uh, he yeah. does not fall in romantic love. Um, the second thing that happens is that he then sends his servant Skirsnir to woo her, and woo is uh, put in quotation marks, because what does he do? He shows up and he offers her gold. She's not interested. And then he starts telling her that he's going to kill her family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's not wooing, that's coercion. <laughs> yeah, it's not the, the madly falling tale because i think sometimes maybe these things are changed to appease modern times almost oh yeah. you know, if you if you listen to the neil gaiman norse mythology book when he tells the story you can tell it's been altered slightly to appease that kind of like modern principles like it's he go you know he goes and convinces her after a period of time it doesn't go into the details of you know, the offering of money, the threats. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and another thing you have to consider is also translations. Neil Gaiman, I'm not sure that he knows Old Norse, so he might not <laughs> ever have been able to actually read it in its, uh, in its original form. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you, for instance, see with the saga literature is a lot of translations, especially into English, but also the, uh, other languages, also the other Scandinavian languages, are actually, uh, uh, you know, you, they weed out all the, the nasty stuff. Uh, uh, stuff that has to do with sex because there's a lot of that in there actually yeah. um, there are sagas uh, I think is it Lux de la Saga I think uh, might have uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if it's that one or if it's another one but there's one saga that begins with somebody some woman complaining about the size of her uh, husband's penis you know it's just <laughs> in there and that, that was fine for those people to write down back then yeah. they had a different concept of these things so, so, so when you see a lot of this material being translated in the Victorian era or the early 20th century, all that stuff about penises is weeded out. <laughs> and that's the same for a story like this one with the yeah. Freyr and Gerder. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, when she refuses also even when he's uh, threatening the lives of her family members, her father and brother, um, the next thing that happens is then that he curses her and he mm-hmm. takes away her f- fertility. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing. He's, he says that he's turning the gods and the elves against her. 
and says that she'll live in hell, I think it is, with a, what is it, a nine-headed or three-headed uh, uh, ogre and drink goat piss. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and all this was, uh, that was a strange one. Right? It's kind of strange, but then again, it makes sense in this mm -hmm. magical universe that they're yeah. dealing with. Because he also wields a, a um, sort of like a Harry Potter-like magical wand. Um, <laughs> he, he says that he has this magical wand, and now he's cursing her with it. And that might be the real, uh, uh, the real thing that we're dealing with here, uh, that this story uh, is perhaps maybe... A story about uh, the fertility of landscape, Gerder, does mean uh, it, it, the field enclosure, um, the arable land. And, and uh, Freyr is a fertility deity. He's also a deity of kings. Um, so it, it, it has been interpreted as is a, an expression of royal ideology, of taking over land, um, and maybe also in an agrarian context of making land arable. So, so maybe it actually doesn't have much to do with a wedding as such, um, but a, more of a sort of divine wedding with the land rather than two people. Mm -hmm. so, so that might explain a little bit about these, uh, these curious uh, um, aspects of it. And then, of course, then we're asking ourselves, well, does that waiting period relate to an actual waiting period in context of a wedding, or does it have some kind of like implications for... Uh, making land arable or useful or something like that, that's hard to tell. But if it is, you know, in context of a wedding, then, yeah, we, we have these explanations that, yeah, waiting periods might be a good idea for mm -hmm. uh, social reasons, uh, taboo reasons, magical reasons. You have to consider we're also yeah. living, living in a magical worldview here, right? So yeah. people... They, 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 they have ideas. They have curious ideas, you know. Um, just go back to the uh, medieval remedies for all kinds of ailments, you know, especially in England. Um, there's, there's way too much um, rabbit feces in some of those potions. <laughs> <laughs> You're just wondering what, what is going on right there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a good uh, point to end it on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the simple point is simply just you, you don't always understand the logic yeah. that is happening, right? Well, it's a different time, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's different time, different cultures. So you can only take kind of so much from it. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a good time to, to wrap it up. I think the last, the last thing we probably should just touch on is the pronunciations that you use. Obviously, ignore my pronunciations. <laughs> they are terrible. Hopefully, mine will get better listening to you. But obviously, you, you, you were saying before that you used the old Icelandic. Yeah, modern, modern Icelandic actually. Um, so, so we have two in in the, uh, the scholarship of the, of the old Norse language. There, there are two camps. Um, and there's the there's the one that prescribes using modern Icelandic pronunciation, and then there's the one that prescribes the reconstructed old Norse pronunciation. Um, but in, in, in effect, the, the differences aren't that great. And um, uh, like, for instance, the, the A that has the little accent over it um, in modern Icelandic is pronounced au, and in, in uh, the reconstructed Old Norse, it's a, it's a long A, it's like an ah sound. Mm 
And, and yeah, we can, you know, linguists will go back and forth on what is most appropriate. I, I was taught uh, Old Norse by Icelanders. So, so I adhere to that tradition. Um, that that's the way that I've I've learned it, and and to me it's 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 not you know that incredibly important uh, if if I sound exactly like um, a guy from the 1100s. <laughs> yes, I think the main thing is that it's it's not necessarily there's a right way and a wrong way. I mean, there obviously is a wrong way the way that I say it. But when it comes to to, to, to scholars in that you guys, even amongst yourself, you have your own different ways of saying certain things. And it's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's just that you use slightly different. Yeah, there are different traditions. And I, and I don't think the, uh, you know, the, 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 the common way of uh, pronouncing these things in sort of an anglicized version is, is particularly wrong either. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, when you're a scholar in this field, you're expected to, know, understand, and, and, and be able to work with the Old Norse language. Um, but, but, you know, when you're, when you're a lay person who's just interested in all of this stuff, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any problem in, uh, in using a, uh, a, uh, a, a pronunciation that comes from, uh, from, from the language that, that is your primary language. I mean, after all, um, Old Norse literature might come from the Nordic world, but it's it's part of world literature, so it's something that we can all enjoy. And um, you know, just because the the Icelandic uh, way of pronouncing things will twist your tongue in weird ways, yeah. it doesn't. It shouldn't uh, discourage you from from being interested, right? Yeah, I think hopefully something like this will help with that as well, because it's hard enough trying to get your head around the mythology at the best of times, let alone if you were to, when you pick up a book and attempt to read it, especially being, you know, just a primary British speaking person, I have little to pretty much no understanding of any other language. So when I look at, you know, some of the the words and the, the names of people, the names of places, and you see these different letters that, that don't exist in our language, let alone the sounds. Mm-hmm. So that adds like an extra level of confusion to trying to learn because you can't even kind of fathom how to say some of the words in your own head, let alone then try and understand everything else. So I think hearing how they are said, at least people then when they do their own reading kind of will go, okay, well, that's how it was said. So even if they kind of sort of pronounce it the same way, yeah, they've at least got something in their head that they can strap to that visual and go right. Well, that makes it a little bit easier going yeah. forward. Yeah, hopefully it helps. Um, but then again, I mean, I, I personally, I, I I feel like um, if that's something when you're reading, if if that's something that confuses you, then gloss it over. Just go <laughs> and then, then that's go what on I do. From there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> because, what I've been doing. It's been all these different kind of noises have been going on. I'm just like, I have no idea. <laughs> Some of them, I'm just like, oh, I'm not even going to try. And and that is very understandable. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's so impressive when I see you just kind of roll them off your tongue. I'm like, what? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I sometimes I also make mistakes. I just realized that I uh, 
uh, in one of the videos I had made, I, I was uh, I added an extra syllable to uh, to an Icelandic uh, place name, and uh, you know that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not an Icelandic native speaker, so mm-hmm. so you know, I mean, I also sometimes make make mistakes and and so on. But that's how language works, you know. And, yeah. um, it is language seems daunting um, when when you look at it from the outside, but at some point, you know. Uh, you also become familiar with it, and 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 ultimately, language is a, you know, a, a it's 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 just a, a tool to communicate. And if if things work out, then that's fine, you know, even with mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and um, so we've discussed the Shieldmaidens, the Valkyries. We've gone into depth on the Brunhild, and it's been a fun one. It's been educational. Hopefully, you guys have enjoyed it as well. And you'll be back for the next one.